Amen. Good morning, Calvary. Good morning to those listening online as well. As we are uh, continuing to keep our eyes on COVID and how it goes, know that we have plans to um, do both, slow down and speed up. (laughs) So we're keeping our eyes on that and uh, know that we are thinking and praying through the safety measures is also balancing with the need to gather um, both with kids ministry and all those things going forward. So I want you to tell you that as we are starting a new series today. We're starting a series called Kingdom Training. And this idea of kingdom training is really going through the second half of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the second half really gets the, a really big application. And I actually recorded a sermon Thursday because I'm doing that proactively in case something happens. And I recorded the sermon Thursday, and today's sermon that I'm actually doing live is pretty different than what I recorded Thursday because God has a way of doing that sometimes. <laughs> So as we break this down, I'm actually going to take, instead of doing the two parts, I'm going to just do the first half of this and set up the second half of the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. When he saw the crowds, that's Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. A few key things there. This is a a passage that is the initial teaching of Jesus. Kind of a big deal. When Jesus sat down, that's the equivalent of a pastor standing behind a pulpit. We don't have a pulpit. So standing on stage on Sunday morning and saying, this is the word of the Lord. It it, it was a time to take notes. It was a time to pull out your uh, tablets and chisel something in as we take our tablets and do it differently, right? Some of you will get that later. It's a time to, to do all of these things and say, okay, this is important. In fact, this sermon was so important that it would have been understood that if you were reading any of the other New Testament books, that you would understand the background of the basic teachings of Jesus. Now, All of that to say, the initial salvo, the initial shot across the bow, if you will, of Jesus' first sermon started with, happy or blessed are you who are poor in spirit. What a great message. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Now we hear that and we sit there and go, of course, that's Jesus' teaching. But do you realize that would have been not the expected norm at the time. So what's Jesus doing here? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is emphatically challenging the norm with a deeper understanding of his kingdom. He's emphatically challenging the norm. So Jesus was teaching the people that they would have to adjust what they have learned to find the ultimate purpose in life, a deep and meaningful relationship with God himself. Now, how does this apply to us today in every way imaginable? In every way imaginable because I think we still have to adjust the way we think, what we believe, and allow God to speak into us. You see, Jesus was trying to challenge the way that they were very, the way they were even thinking. In doing so, I want to give a little credit to a Matt Chandler sermon I heard not too long ago that really got me thinking about this message. And 
And in doing so, he says that every single culture has a plausibility structure. By plausibility structure, here's how he defines that. It's what intuitively strikes the culture as rational. And every single culture has what they intuitively think, what they naturally think will be rational in the way that they practice life in the world. Uh, in, in seminary, we call this hauglisitka, which is a fancy word for saying that it is impossible to separate the fact that you are living right now, if the, unless you're out of town visiting, in the greater Lafayette area. So you are living in 2020. We do know it's the year 2020, right? And that you are, based on the generation you grew up, based on your life experiences, it is impossible to totally separate who you are and not read into that in the way you interpret the Bible. And the way you listen to culture and to God. And so this is what Jesus is challenging. It's okay to be who you are, but he's challenging you to step outside of what everything that has shaped you, everything else that has shaped you, to allow him to shape you into what he wants. Now, in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit more about the way the Western world thinks. And when you're chasing the way the Western world thinks, you chase it all the way back to the Enlightenment, and there's been three major characteristics that have shaped our school systems, our, 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 our government, every way we think. And here are the three ways that the, our plausibility structure in the Western world has caused us to think. First, the Western world thinks very mechanistic. Now, <laughs> what do I mean by mechanistic? You take a gear, you put it with another gear, you make a machine work, right? There's a step A, step B, we are Ikea on steroids, okay? Now, this... In a town like Lafayette or West Lafayette makes perfect sense because we have this little thing called Boiler Up here. And in case you don't know, there's a whole lot of engineers in this town and they like to tell me the steps for doing everything and I love you all. And I really do. But there's a lot of steps and that's the natural way we think. What's, this shapes the way we parent. What are the steps we're going to parent? This shapes the way that we are going to learn. Let's talk about math. What's the first thing to teach you? You have to learn addition before you learn subtraction, before you learn multiplication, before you learn trig. What? How do we get there? We skipped a few steps in there, Daniel, the way we naturally think. English, we learn vocabulary words so that we can learn the bigger things. We learn the sentence structure. It's systems. And they're not wrong. But that's not how all of the world thinks. Now, when you have systems that guide and shape the way that you think, what's naturally going to be is an intellectual understanding takes preeminence. Understanding is vital. Knowledge is supreme. If I can think it, I can know it. And if I can know it, I can understand it. If I can understand it, I can have dominion or control over it. Now, what happens is we have a lot of people who think they know a lot of things, so that's created in our culture a natural sense of skepticism. You know how I know? Some of you are skeptical right now of what I'm saying. You've been so ingrained to doubt every single thing that when you go to your teacher and your teacher is teaching you based on their PhD, and you're sitting there going, I don't know if I agree with that. That when you go to every single time you go to a sermon or every single time you watch a news program, there is this, this line that's measuring and you, it makes you sit there and you go, I don't know. And skepticism, I challenge the church to be skeptical. Why? Because I'm human. But skepticism makes a lousy God. It can make you a bitter person. So when you understand all of these things in the way that we look, this is how a lot of times we have viewed the Word of God. 
I want to intellectually understand it. I want to be able to explain it. And if I can't explain it, then it's not. The problem is we have faith. You shouldn't be able to fully explain faith because by definition, that's counter, right? Faith is trusting in stuff that you can't fully explain, that God is bigger than we ever imagined, that God is doing things that we can't fully understand or comprehend. Why? Because He is God and we are mere mortals. Now, that's all good and that's all fine, but I want you to understand that our culture is shifting from this mindset of the mechanistical intellectual thing and there is a slow shift to another thing. Why? Because there is part of the way that we have thought that has not worked. The system has failed us. And to understand this a little more, I'm going to go back to the time where Jesus was teaching. When Jesus was presenting this message, there were two schools of thoughts. Let me give you a little spoiler. Every culture has had the battle over these two schools of thought. Since the beginning of time, since sin entered the world, this is the battle. It's the, an oversimplification of this would be as evidence to the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? They were philosophies that were practiced at the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Now the Stoics, a very, very oversimplicated definition of how the, the Stoics lived their philosophical way of life, okay? I know that I could spend the next 14 days talking about this and not fully describe it, okay? But this is a very oversimplification. The Stoics believed I think, therefore I am. Hey, that's what we've been doing in the Western world. That's great. The problem is I think, therefore I am, is sometimes you think wrong. And therefore our systems are sometimes wrong. And when our systems are wrong, we tend to run to something else to find, to replace it, something else to tweak it, something else to make us feel better. And so the natural inclination of our society right now is to shift from the stoic, I think, therefore, I am, especially to the younger generation, goes into the hint of, I feel, therefore, I am. Because an oversimplification of the Epicureans is, if you feel right, it is right. I feel, therefore, I am. I feel this is going on, so why would I have this feeling if it isn't right? And the problem with I feel, therefore, I am, is if you feel like a tree, are you a tree? No. So we have to understand that there are problems with both systems. I feel, therefore, I am, and I think, therefore, I am. And systems will always fail us. Now, this is the point in our program where I'd like to pause and say, I think systems are good if they serve their means. Systems make lousy gods. I'm thankful for the school system. Some of the kids are like, whoa, where do we go there? I'm thankful for the school system. I'm thankful for the government giving us paved roads, right? I'm even thankful sometimes for taxes because it gives us things like police and the fire department people to protect us when somebody accidentally sets a grass fire. I don't know, from a firework, that would never have happened to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. That didn't happen this year, but it may have happened another year. But as you're really doing this and you're understanding, there are good things with systems. But when we look at systems as our saviors, one of the dangers we have as systems as a society is that our society often looks at systems as a savior. When one thing isn't saving us, we tend to look for another system to replace it. Hello, anybody watching the news? Now, 
Here's the danger. The church. The church knows that this isn't the way we're supposed to live. But the church often doesn't realize how much it's influenced by the culture around us. And so in the the day, the religious leaders, they would have said, we're not Epicureans, we're not Stoics, we don't think therefore we are. We don't feel therefore we are. The, The Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, their mindset was more, I am holy, therefore I am. Y'all aren't laughing. That's pretty funny. (laughs) I am holy. Grandma taught me the way to live faith. And I'm living that faith. Don't tell me grandma's faith was wrong. We create systems which in and of themselves aren't bad except when we look at the system as a savior. Now, let's look at how this unfolds. Let's talk about everybody's favorite subject denominations. Okay? Sometimes people come to me and go, Daniel, we should never have denominations. That's kind of like saying, okay, I don't think we should have a right thumb because I'm a right knee. That was actually my left thumb. I don't think we should have a right thumb because my right knee, I have a right knee. And, and I sit there and I go, okay, I'm thankful for the different denominations because they represent the whole body of Christ. So to our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, I would say thank you for the charisma that you bring us. Amen? To the, the denominations that, that, that go over the deep uh, theological, just diving in. Thank you for doing that. But let's look and see how this builds up the body. Now, every denomination, including this one, some of you don't even know we have a denomination. I'm not even going to bring it up, okay? I just pray we're not the appendix, okay? But as we do this, as you look at every denomination will have its faults and failings. Why? Because they're just systems, but yet the systems exist to move and breathe in cooperation of the head. What's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. So the church that we have and exist and move and breathe in should recognize that even though what we do has some failings, it still serves its purpose in the bigger kingdom of God. Can you get it? Now, Let's take this on in the way through our society works, and then we're going to look how the Bible should overlap that. When we look at how the way systems work, we have to recognize every system will fail. So the church looks really stupid when we don't admit that. Can I just be really candid there? I'm going to go a little farther and say this. And and I want you to to bear with me. You you can bring your skeptic if you want. You can listen to this if you want. But I, I want you to listen to this real carefully. There are things that we have to be willing to wrestle with that are uncomfortable. And I want to ask you that one of the things the word system is used over and over in our news the last few weeks is the idea of systematic racism. Is there racism in our system? Let me tell you a story. I've served in two juries. It's amazing to me that they put a minister in a jury. Like, I just sit there and go, do y'all know what you're doing? Right? I served in two juries. One, not in this county. It was of a black man. And in that trial, there were 11 white people on the jury. One white person. There was two pieces of evidence given, although very condemning evidence. When we walked in the jury room after the trial had been 20 minutes, the first words out of somebody's mouth were, can we just admit this man is guilty so we can go home? due process. I was in another jury that spent five or six 
hours with evidence of a white man, an elderly white man, 12 white jurors. To me, I was sitting there in the jury going, man, this guy is disgusting. He is clearly, clearly wrong. He is clearly guilty. We walk in the jury and we had to spend four or five hours convincing one lady that this guy was guilty because there's no way a man, sweet old man like that could have done any of those things he was accused of, even though the evidence was overwhelming. Why? The same reason when I see a redhead in the mall, I go, what's up? Because we're naturally drawn to people who look like us. Now, is the system wrong that we have juries? No, I'm thankful for jury. I'm thankful there's 12 people instead of one deciding our fate. But can we understand that if there's a lot less people that look like you in the jury, that you're more likely to be found guilty? Now, what do we do with that as the church? Here's the good part. We don't throw it all out and start again. We take the Bible to it. We take God's truth to it. We recognize the injustice, and when we open up God's word, we say, let there be justice. But I'm not just. And any system I come up with will be faulty. So God, show us your ways. Show us how to change the world with your words, your truth with me. Maybe that's why he started the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. By the way, they're theirs, that's the, that's the way you follow Christ. Maybe that's the place where we do, when we realize that, that we have no way to fix anything, that sin has so creeped into my life, that sin has so creeped into your life that we don't even recognize how wicked and evil we are. Yet Jesus gave himself and died on the cross for you and for me. And his grace says, child, I love you. And in the jury of life, you and I deserve an eternal separation sentence from God himself. But he not only would defended us, he stood in our place and took the punishment upon himself so that anybody who receives Christ could be made whole. Freedom, 4th of July, wave the banners, right? Freedom we have is in Christ. So the answer to our brokenness is not to put our hope in the truth that of another system. It's to put our hope in our truth that God is who He says He is. And what He wants is what is the answer for us and the whole world. Whether He wants to tweak our systems or start afresh, we can't do without Him. So let me ask you this. Where do you put your hope? Where do you put your hope in the way you think and believe? Do you find yourself, oh, God wouldn't do that or say that? Do you find yourself sitting there trying to rationalize away the Scripture because you don't think a loving God would? It's not about what you think. It's resting and being absolutely drawn into His presence. Once again, I'm not saying intellect isn't important, but the idea of kingdom training is not promoting a life of routine or systems, even though we need them. 
We need the government, police, schools, and science. We just need to understand that more we need than anything else is to let the gospel penetrate those. Without that, we will continually fail. And the way we formulate what we do and the way we live needs to be gospel-centered. So as we're going through all this right now, this difficult year for so many a lot of people have asked me the following question, Daniel, and this may be a really good initial question that people ask. Are the trials I'm undergoing a punishment from God? <laughs> Let me give you a better question. The better question is, God, what do you want me to learn? God, with everything that's going on, what do you want me to learn? One looks back, one looks forward. I don't want to look back. Do you? We should know our history, but let's look forward. Let's not just throw everything out, but let's let God show us what needs to be thrown out. Because He is holy and faithful and just. He is righteous and pure. Rather than taking God into our world, let's take our world to God and let Him shape us. How do we do that? How do we really ask, God, where do you want me to learn? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, part of the reason we have a hard time understanding that passage is we don't understand what the word poor means. In the Greek, there's actually seven different words for the word poor. You're welcome. But the word it's actually using to describe there is also found in Luke 21, 1 through 4. When Jesus looked up, he saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. And he saw a poor widow dropping in two Tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, said this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of these have put in their gifts out of the surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live in. What are you giving God? Oh, I go to church. Congratulations. Even during a pandemic, I was there. <laughs> Good job. I give. I serve. I, I give God his due. Well, good. I'm glad. That's not what the widow did. That widow gave everything. You see, the moment she went and gave those two coins, the actual Greek word for poverty, poor changed to poverty, which means absolute poverty, as in she didn't have a next meal. And I'm wondering, when was the last time that we got before God and said, I have nothing if I don't have you. I mean, I, I have nothing. I, I have no solutions anymore. I, I think that would be great. Now, let me just unpack this a little more. And this is what I'm talking about. In a, in a few moments, we're going to have something called the daily training, which is a system, Right? It's a way to practice the system. It's a way to practice training. And when we do the daily training, the hope is that it draws you closer to the presence of God. But a lot of times people look at these, I know, and you go with skeptic eyes, I don't want to do this week's. Yeah, I'll do next week's. I don't feel like doing that. And you're allowing your mentality to determine whether or not you're following God. Well, Daniel, your systems could be wrong. Right. I get that. So what are you doing to challenge yourself to grow. Because that's why we give them to you. 
And I don't think the answer is more intellectual understanding any more than it's just being flighty love. I love love. Woo! What good does that do? We have to have the balance because intimacy involves all of these things. In fact, let me read you a quote by a renowned intellectual theologian of the Western world, Jonathan Edwards. And let me read you this quote from his book on religious affections. A person who has knowledge of doctrine and theology only, without religious affection, has never engaged in true religion. Nothing is more apparent than this. Our religion takes root within us only as deep as our affections attract it. There are thousands who hear the word of God, I would say millions, who hear in great and exceedingly important truths about themselves and their lives, and yet all they hear has no effect on them, makes no change in the way they live. The reason is this, they are not affected with what they hear. There are many who hear about the power, the holiness, and the wisdom of God, about Christ and great things that he has done for them and his gracious invitation to them. And yet they remain exactly as they are in life and in practice, stuck in their systems. That last little part's my quote. As he continues on, he says, I am bold in saying this, but I believe that no one is ever changed either by doctrine or by hearing the word of God, or by preaching or teaching of another, unless the affections are moved by these things. No one ever seeks salvation. No one ever cries for wisdom. No one ever wrestles with God. No one ever kneels in prayer or flees from sin with a heart that remains unaffected. In a word, there is never any great achievement by the things of religion without a heart deeply affected by these things. You get it. The answer isn't stoicism or epicureanism. The answer isn't I think or I feel. The answer isn't us saying we're holy. Woo, we got it figured out. The answer is to fall before the presence of God and say, change me. I can't do it anymore. Oh, I long to be in a church I long in my own life to dare say I will not come without drawing into the presence of God more. God, may I not hear a sermon where I don't leave unaffected. May I not sing a song where I don't leave drawn closer to you. May I not walk on this earth without each step breathing in and out your name. And when I make mistakes, Show me. Because here's the thing. All of us lack perfection. Jonathan Edwards himself would have quite a bit to repent from today, from the way he lived. We're never going to arrive. But don't let your imperfection lead you to a place of being out on the goodness and the graciousness of God. As we go through this the rest of the day, the rest of the time, let me say this. Kingdom training is not about establishing a new system to guide our faith. Rather, it's about abandoning our self-sufficiency 
I think that's kind of the key right now, to repent from our self-sufficiency, to repent from the idea that we have arrived, to repent from the fact that whether I'm 95, and no one in this room is 95, right? Uh, raise your hand if you are, and I'll give you a, a round of applause. No one's, uh, to repent from the fact whether I'm 95 or nine weeks old, I have plenty to learn. And God, show me what I need to learn. And how can we learn if we don't listen? So here's our, our daily training this week. For at least 24 hours this week, my challenge to you is fast from all news, social media and technology. <laughs> all the moms with, amen. Spend that time instead in asking God to fill you with his presence. Can I just go one step farther? The 24 hours that you fast from the social media, the news, and the media, don't just replace it with going camping or board games or sitting around talking. That's fine to do those things, but, but rather instead spend the time really trying to challenge you and whatever your family is to ask God, what do you want me to learn? With that in mind, been pointed out, I should give one little exception as if I have the authority to tell you what you can and can't do. I just give you challenges. Listening to worship music and podcasts are often done on technology. Go for it. But draw into the presence of God. What would it look like to awaken up to a world that really believes that God is who he says he is? That in our imperfection, that we recognize that we can't create a system, that the government can't create a system, that the schools can't create a system, that science can't create a system, that, that the church without the power of God has nothing to offer the world. What would it look like if we got down and truly said, God, I'm utterly dependent on you. God, I, I need you to do a mighty stirring in my spirit that you are bigger than I ever thought I would. God, I need you to do something amazing in me to blow my mind with what you're going to do. God, our world is waking up to the reality that we are broken. I am broken. Come, do something mighty. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it begins by doing that. That's the person you came with. Go to yourcalvary.info slash follow or talk to one of us outside. We'd love to tell you how Jesus should be your all. In the church, here's my prayer. We learn that the only system that will suffice us is being found face to face at the foot of the cross. That we recognize continually the importance of emptying ourselves, our ways, our ideals, and that we learn that the most healing thing we can do is to constantly say, I can't. Therefore, God, do. Do you want racism to end? It starts there. You want the injustices of this world to end? It starts there. You want to see God move in such a mighty way in this country? I got news for you. There's something more powerful than the vote you're going to pallet and cast in a few months. It's you casting the vote in your heart right now to say, God, wherever you go, I'm there. And trusting that he is bigger 
that he is stronger, that he is holy, he is kind, he is just, he is wise, he is a friend, he is an advocate, he is a redeemer, he is pure, he is far greater than we can even imagine, and we could spend the rest of our days giving him praise, which we should do, but we can't unless we come before him and invite him to change us. So God, here I stand. I pray that you would begin a mighty revival and let it begin with me. That you would move in such a way that my heart would be changed. God, that you would awaken us to the error of our ways. That you would awaken us from trying to do things on our own, that you would awaken us from the things that cause others to stumble and that God, through our repentance, through our coming before you, that you would look down and remind us that we are loved and that we are valued and that we have meaning and purpose and that we have dignity made in the image of God and that we would look up and make a difference for you, helping others to find that dignity, helping others to find that salvation, that hope that only you offer. God, that you would move in such a way that we would have to recognize this is not of us, but you are doing a dynamic, matter, a wonderful ginormous act before us. God, that you are so much bigger than we have ever fathomed, that you are so much bigger than we ever thought. God, may you be glorified. Amen.